Good evening. Hey, welcome to our live stream service. And I don't know about you guys, but um, I long for the day when it's not a live stream, but it's a, a place where we can share a live hug, a live smile, a live handshake, believe it or not. We miss you guys. Uh, I, for one, I long for the time where we can meet face to face, and I want you guys to know how much we miss you and how important you are to this place. We can be in this beautiful sanctuary, but without the people, uh, it's really not the church. So we do miss you guys. I pray that you're taking care of yourselves. I pray that we will be together soon. And um, I wanna encourage you tonight. Soon and very soon, we will be getting together. I'm praying for that. I want you to be encouraged in that. We're not gonna have this cheap substitute, <laughs> as thankful as I am for live streams, it's nothing but a cheap substitute when you're not here. So um, let's pray for that today, that we would be together soon, share smiles, share hugs, be the church together. So let's pray. So Father, uh, thank you for your people wherever they are this evening. I pray that you would keep them safe. I pray that you would keep them encouraged, Father, and that they would know they are the church, that this empty auditorium is not the church. You, your people are the church. They're precious to you. You have a plan for them. Father, I pray that you would protect them today. I pray that you'd bring us all together soon, that we'd be able to enjoy each other's embraces, share smiles, share amens. So Father, be with your people, please, this evening. Father, I pray that your word would go out today. I pray that it would have its perfect way in us. I pray that your spirit would make application where it needs to be made, Father. I pray that it would soften hearts, that it would move people to remember you again. So we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you guys out there today. <laughs> hey, we'll be in Exodus chapter 10 this evening. So as you guys make your way to Exodus chapter 10, it's a, it's a wonderful chapter. It's, uh, we're continuing in the plague narratives um, with the eighth and the ninth plagues that the awesome God of Israel is smiting Egypt and Pharaoh with. And it is the devastating plagues of locusts and complete and utter darkness. That's what we'll see today. And as we do that, as usual, per all of these plagues, for me, it's a great opportunity to not only learn, but to remember the greatness of our God. I think it's a great value of the plagues is for us to remember God and I think and his greatness and I think we all need a good reminder of him every now and again amen I think that's one of the themes that I grab out of the plagues is it's an opportunity to not only learn but to remember him and as we consider this plague of locusts and darkness we see an omnipotent God expressing his sovereignty really perfectly he's up in heaven far above the earth his plan is working out perfectly as it is today in our lives as it was 4,000 years ago with these Egyptians and these Israelites so I pray today we would remember him and his greatness as we go through this let's get right to it chapter 10 verse 1 then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart 
and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell the hearing of your sons and grandsons how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Verse 3, So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the fields. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all the Egyptians. And neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now listen, in these first six verses, God is telling Moses to give another warning to Pharaoh. Give him a warning. This is what's going to come if you don't let my people go. And what strikes me is a very familiar phrase that we've been discussing almost every chapter, every sermon we've been going through this is it's a, a, a phrase and it's something worth mentioning again. It says here in verse one that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we know from previous discussions that it's not that God hardened Pharaoh's heart against his own desires. It's that he actually hardened his heart not against but in his own desires that he really set him in his own evil, wicked, prideful desires. He just set it in concrete. The time for changing was over. He hardened him. He just confirmed or revealed what was in Pharaoh's heart anyways. Quite literally, he actually twisted and wrung his own evil, prideful desires out of his dark heart so that it was hidden no longer. It was out in the open. It's as if God's just taking him by the throat and showing everybody what was in his heart. He summons him into court and said, hey, this is what this guy's really about. And a lot of times it's hard for us to reconcile God hardening hearts, but it also speaks of a great characteristic of our Lord. He and his greatness is that he's sovereign. We talked about this last time. He's a sovereign God. He is the supreme ultimate ruler over all the universe. And he is most definitely, as that supreme ultimate ruler, free to express his supreme ultimate authority as he sees fit. It's his divine prerogative, you'd say. That's part of being sovereign, is the buck stops with him. There's nobody above him. He does what he wills. You may remember Paul talking about this same narrative in Romans chapter 9. He just simply, simply says this about Pharaoh's hardened heart. He said, God gives mercy on who he wills, and he hardens who he wills. Now, in my little brain, sometimes that's hard to reconcile, because the God that I see is the God of mercy. <laughs> that's the God I want. But he's a sovereign God who gives mercy whom he wills, and he hardens who he wills. So one of the things we want to keep in the back of our head as we're remembering and learning about God through these plagues, he's a great God. He's a God that's sovereign. He's the sovereign, ultimate ruler of the universe. In comparison to Pharaoh, way above. And he's making that point by hardening his heart. Verse 2, why would he do such a thing? 
Why would he harden Pharaoh's heart? We got to know this. This is a theme throughout these plagues. There's lots of reasons. So it says here that you would know that I am Lord, that you'd know my mighty signs. But I love what he says in verse 2. He says that you may tell in the hearings of your sons and grandsons that I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians. You'd see the signs and you'd say that I am the Lord. You see? God's actions, his methods in the Exodus generation is not to be kept secret is what he's saying. It's to be passed on to future generations, to sons and grandsons. I think he hardened his heart so he could hold him up and smite him blow after blow in different ways, showing people he's not divinity, I'm divinity. He has no power. I'm going to show my great strength in him. And he keeps doing it over and over and over again for one reason that we must get so that sons and grandsons, future generations would know the greatness of this God. Amen? His all-powerful, strong arm and his sovereignty that everybody would know that, not just this generation, but generations below. I mean, think about what we're studying right now. It's 4,000 years ago. And we're still looking at this. Amen? This is the reason why he did what he did. He could have one-punched Pharaoh. Done. Over. He didn't. There's a method. He has a plan. He's over and over and over again showing his sovereignty, his power, his intricate plan, even though it doesn't work out like we think it's getting done. Amen? So our grandsons would go, wow, he is the Lord. Wow, he is sovereign. Wow, I didn't see that coming, you see? God's redemptive purposes and methods reach out way further than this generation. Amen? Amen, all right. (laughs) Let's continue. Verse three, there's a great little phrase right here. So you have Moses and Aaron going in and giving a warning that the locusts are gonna come. I love this phrase in verse three. How long, God is saying through Moses, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long? You see, because really pride is at the very heart of the issue with Pharaoh. Because he thought he was divinity. He did not want to set himself under God Almighty. That's really the heart of the issue. It's pride. That's what made his heart so dark. Is that he was a prideful like divine figure in his own mind. And he did not want to put himself under God Almighty. And pride is the original sin, don't you think? When you think about this, long before Adam and Eve came along, in the same area, that same garden, there used to be a rock garden. You may remember that garden. That was where Lucifer, the anointed cherubim, resided. As far as God's created being, he was at the top. He was numero uno. He was so beautiful and his wisdom was so great that he shone out with glory and he was set amongst these precious stones and he actually shone his glory out. And the rest of the created spirit beings just went, they were in awe. He was beautiful and he was wise. If you read Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, you can see that. But he was a prideful one, wasn't he? He started saying things like, I want to make myself like the Most High. I will make my abode above his. You see, same problem. The trespass is pride. It's pride. It's pride. I don't want to put myself under anyone. I'm going to be like the Most High. 
I am going to put my dwelling place not in a rock garden and shine up. I'm going to be above God, and I will not put myself under God. Pharaoh has the same problem. I think it's because he thought he was divinity, and he did not humble himself. His biggest problem, that's why God said, how long, how many blows is it going to take you to humble yourself? He needs to remember, like we do, pride is the original sin, and it is a killer. We need to remember Peter when he says in his epistle, God resists the proud. He resists it. You are against God. He will resist you if you are prideful. If you think you're lording over your own lives or your own little divinity that you think you're in charge of, you are, you are sadly, sadly mistaken Your perspective is so far off that God will resist you. You're nowhere near where you need to be. He goes on to say he gives grace for the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of the Lord, and he will exalt you in due time. You want to be exalted? You want to be raised up? One way is humble yourself. Take the low spot. That's what Jesus taught. He will then bring you up. But you don't do it yourself. Pride was at the heart of the issue of Pharaoh, and I think it's a fair question that God asked Pharaoh, and it's a fair question that he asks us all. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That phrase is worth thinking about this evening, amen? I believe that it is. So, the next section, verses 7 through 13, or through 11, is a, uh, for me anyways, is uh, a very intriguing section. And it really intrigued me. Let's read it and see what God has to say here. And I'll share my thoughts and see if they align with yours. Verse seven. So, after asking these questions to Pharaoh, when are you gonna humble? Awesome, in verse seven, what Pharaoh's servants do to him. He goes, this, uh, verse seven, then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve their Lord, their God. For you do not understand that Egypt is ruined. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord, your God. But which ones are to go? And Moses answered, we will go with all of our young and all of our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds. For we must hold a feast to the Lord. Verse 10, but he said to them, Pharaoh did, the Lord be with you if I ever let your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. It's an interesting little section if you really look at it. After being asked to humble, verse seven, to me it looks like the only servants he has left. <laughs> Magicians are gone. His council's gone, right? They've, they've endured seven plagues. The only ones left say, listen, how long is Moses gonna be a snare to us and his God? How, how long? These guys, the most staunch supporters at this point, in light of the destruction of the hail that just came and all the previous plagues, say, listen, Moses, Check the scoreboard out. We're losing. And Egypt is almost gone. 
the way we knew it. It's ruined, they would say. And like a good corner man in a boxing match, they're saying, I think you've had enough. The more you resist and the more you punch, the deeper problems we get put into. It's like a tar baby. Quit punching back. Just let him go. Good advice. And Pharaoh seems to heed it in verse 8. Look at him, or in verse uh, 8, he says, So Moses and Aaron were brought back into Pharaoh. Okay. So Pharaoh seems to be inching in the right direction, as far as I'm concerned. I like to think that he's starting to humble himself a little bit and listen to people, which is a new concept for him as being the the God divine ruler of Egypt. He brings them back into their courts and said, okay, you guys can go, but who's going? Did you hear how quickly he changes his tune when Moses says, we're all even, lock, stock, and barrel. Our sons, our daughters, our flocks, our herds, everybody's going. Pharaoh doesn't like that. See, he's starting to feel the rug pulled out from under him, don't you think? Because I thought the negotiation was this. You're going to let some men go worship with some animals to kill. That's, I thought, what he was negotiating. In the very moment that he says, okay, I'll let the men go, Moses says, no, I want them all out of here. They're all gone. I think for the very first time, it's where I think Pharaoh's heart went to, yeah, let's bring them back to the court. Let's see if we can give them what they want to get the heck out of here. God help you if I ever let you do that. And he turned and hardened again. I think it's because for the very first time, he realized what God's intentions were the whole time. And that was, we're all getting out of here. There's not going to be a hoof left in this land that's Jewish. And we're all out of here. I don't think that was revealed to Pharaoh. If he heard it, I don't think he really heard it in his heart. I think what he was bargaining for was to let some men go to worship. I think he thought he was going to hold back some livestock, some daughters, some sons, someone to keep his bricks going, you see. And I got to be straight honest with you here. I don't know. I just didn't, I had a hard time reconciling God in my mind right here because it seems like to me that maybe God wasn't negotiating in good faith why didn't he tell from the beginning you see the way I would have done it was to tell Moses what or tell Pharaoh what he wanted to do from the beginning we're all out of here we're not just going to go worship we're all out of here we're never coming back because that's what God wanted from the beginning and I don't know about you but it seems like Pharaoh started to realize it took him eight plagues to relent almost and he's starting to relent right to the point where he figures out the goalpost moved and then it hardened his heart again which is what God wanted in the first place so there you go it seems pretty unfair in a way it seemed like Pharaoh was trapped in a vicious divine plot with no way out is what it really seemed to me and that's exactly what's going on God's making a mockery out of the king of Egypt. That's what he's doing. He's getting him to move, and then he's pulling it away. He's showing everybody just how clever Pharaoh really is. Not very, in comparison to the greatness of our God, you see. Obviously for God, the time for talking, the time for changing attitudes and perspectives and heart had long gone by. And that's something we all want to think about. We serve a long-suffering God, but even he says, time's up. 
Time's up. Yeah, I might think about that. It was very, very difficult for me to reconcile, you see. And it got me to think about Isaiah 55. Because that's not the way I would have done it. I, I, it, it. It doesn't seem very godlike to me to move the goalpost, to negotiate in poor faith in a way. And I started finding myself feeling sorry for Pharaoh. Part of me didn't, but part of me, I got to admit, did. And I think it brings me to Isaiah 55 where it says, listen, verse, verse 8 is, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As far as the heaven is from the earth, that's the distance between our thoughts and our ways to his. We don't see everything. And I believe that what he did was right and that it was good and all that. But like in Mark 9, the father, remember what he said when his, one of his young men, I believe but help my disbelief, right? Sometimes it's hard to grab this and reconcile it. And I think it brought me to a tension that I think all Bible students, all Christians face at one time or another in their studies and in their faith. It's a tension that you have this knowledge over here of what you think God should be like in the knowledge that you have as you've learned about him in the Bible over here. And you have this tension over here that you have to realize that <laughs> he's definitely free to act and to move in ways you didn't see coming right? That's a tension that you're, he's acting the way I'm not anticipating. God, you're not acting like you're supposed to in my knowledge of you. There's that tension and we all have to deal with that. We all have to reconcile that in our brain and maybe this will help you because I think at the fulcrum of that tension between what we know and what we don't understand in the awe and the mystery of God, that tension right there, I think at the very middle of that fulcrum is the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. And those are things you need to bank and remember today in your life. The sovereignty, of course, he's the supreme ruler of the universe, okay? He's definitely free to express himself and his authority in any way he chooses. I'll, that's, you gotta rest in that. That's a fulcrum. You can you can reconcile that tension with, and also his righteousness. And in the simplest forms, God is righteous, which really means in the simplest way is that he is right in all his ways. Everything he does is just or right. Does that make sense? So that's the fulcrum between what we know and what we think he should act like and what sometimes he does things like move the goalpost, old Pharaoh. I can reconcile that by saying he's a sovereign, righteous God. And that tension seems to be okay with me. Maybe it is for you. Maybe you didn't feel sorry for Pharaoh, but I tell you, I did just for a moment. Maybe I'm getting soft, but I saw that. And maybe you did as well. Well, nonetheless, this that little section in verse 11 ends up with Pharaoh being mad. And he is mad. I think he was set up and I think that's okay. But be that as it may, the Lord's gonna bring the locusts because he didn't relent. Verse 12, let's read this little account of these locusts coming around. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust so they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land all the hail has left. Verse 13, so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land and all the day and all that night when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locust. 
And the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts has had never been before, nor will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. So there you are, locusts. And I know that in the West, we think maybe there's a hoppers coming around and you can fish with them and they're kind of a pain. But this was a devastating plague, devastating plague of locusts. Not a green thing remained, it said. The hail had already done serious damage to their livestock and people and trees, but whatever was left was gone. This is a devastating plague. This is total destruction to an agrarian society. We have a hard time understanding that because we're long from an agrarian society now in today's culture. Let me put it in terms that we may understand. Locusts would come to our land and everything that's green is brown. There's no leaves on the trees anymore. And all your grocery stores, all your stores are gone, all the supply chains, gone, all the manufacturing, gone, and you cannot get any fruit from South America, and you can't get anything from overseas. And there is no government bailout stimulus coming your way. How would you feel then? This is what they are feeling right now. This is devastating. There's no food. There's nothing. Egypt is ruined. This is a devastating plague showing the omnipotence of this great God that we serve. When you look at these plagues, you got to stop and go, wow, who can control, who can make this beautiful creation do his bidding? A great God, a powerful God of inexhaustible and inherent power, that's who. And he can bring his little creatures and do what he will. They can do his bidding for them. That straight omnipotence. We must say, wow. God of the Bible is powerful. He determines what he does, and he does it, and there are no limits. Listen, God is famous for so many things. He's got a lot of different characteristics that we could dwell on. But right now, in this moment, he's been made famous for being strong for his omnipotence. He's strong God. And I know there's, I wish there was a better word for that. But I think we, 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 we miss this famous thing. He's famous for that. For being strong. That's why we tell this story. Look what he did. He made creation do his bidding. This guy's arm is not short. He does what he pleases. He's in perfect control. It's powerful. You guys out there ever been famous for something? Some of you guys are famous or infamous would be a better word. There was a time when I was, used to be Dan Vidlak and I used to be famous in some certain circles. International wrestling was one of them. That was a long time ago. But I'll tell you a story. One time I was famous when I wrestled. Not famous like you mean like well-known, but there was something that I was famous for when I wrestled. And it wasn't my technique. I was a technical wrestler, but that wasn't it. It wasn't that I was strong right? I wasn't, I was kind of strong. That wasn't what made me famous. It wasn't my mental toughness. That's not what made me famous. What made me famous is I was fast. 
that even though people knew something was coming, it still got there. And that's what made me famous. And I remember one time I was in, there's a really tough tournament called the Uregan. It's in Siberia. And it is, most people think, uh, up there with the world championships and the Olympics. It's just as hard. Everybody brings their A team, but the Russians get to enter as many Russians as they want because it's in Siberia. And I had wrestled four Russians and I lost to the fifth in the finals. <laughs> so I got the silver. But I remember before my semifinal match, I already, already beat three Russians. And as I'm warming up, I look over and I see Russians drilling with each other, my technique, with a coach. They were showing their guys what I do. And I remember looking at my coach and I said, hey, should we do something different than that nice little low single that I shoot? He goes, nope. That's what you're famous for, Dan. Give them what you're famous for. And I love that because I got there. I got there even though they knew it was coming. And I think we forget what God's famous for. One of the things that makes him special and makes him God Almighty, it makes us say, Kai, this is a great God we serve, is that he's strong, really powerful, inexhaustible, inherent power. He does what he does, and he can do anything. And I think the Israelites knew that. I think to this day, they say special prayers about the strength of God. We'll get there in Exodus chapter 15, right? The song by the sea or Moses' song. It's a poem that they sing and they pray to in mornings. It's basically, it's not talking about the mercy of God or the all-knowing God. It's a, it's a song that's sung. It's a poem that's rung that talks about God being a warrior, that he is a strong God, that he is our great warrior who crushes enemies. You see, Israelites knew how famous he was. They knew it. They felt it. Sometimes I feel like it's a little hard for us to see because sometimes in America, he doesn't need to be strong on our behalf. At least we think. We forget this. We forget that he is a powerful warrior. Israelites got this. We didn't a lot of us need to bring this home on this side of the cross into this room wherever you're, you're watching this from and realize that he's an omnipotent God. He's the God of impossible shots. He's the God of impossible chances. He's the God that can do whatever he feels like he wants to do. His arm isn't short to do it. A lot of us need to be like five-year-old Ryan. My son Ryan, before he was old enough to back talk and he was cute and all those kind of things, when he was five years old, his sport was soccer. He loved playing soccer. And so, of course, as a good dad, I would set up these little putt, we used to call them putt-putt uh, uh, soccer in the house. And we had shots all over, you know, ricocheting, bouncing. So he'd work on his accuracy of passing and scoring. And we had this one shot. It was simply named the impossible shot. It wasn't meant to be made. It was, a be it was meant to say, you ain't there yet. You'll get there someday. It's not meant to be made. It went from his room through about a 35-foot hallway with a three-foot opening into the master bedroom to bank off an armoire into a laundry, a laundry basket. And that was the impossible shots. And one night we were working on the impossible shots. And to no avail, him or his little brother could make this shot. But on the last try, Ryan lines up, stops, drops to his knees, says a silent prayer, jumps up, strikes the ball, and my goodness, the impossible became possible. It went straight down, 
banked off the armoire and went right in. I mean, it was a circus shot. And I'll never forget Ryan. It wasn't the shot. To me, it was a reaction of a five-year-old. He jumped up and said, I knew he was the God of impossible shots. <laughs> That's what he said, impossible shots. Oh, the wonder of his omnipotence a five-year-old gets. But oftentimes, life beats it out of us, don't you think? Because we get hurt. We don't realize that this is a God of impossible shots. We need to get to the point in our lives. This is something we can bring right over to current day. Listen to me. We must get to a point in our life where we can say, God is always able to meet our needs. He's able. He's omnipotent. He has the goods. We got to get to the point where we can say, may he be the strength of my life. May I be less. And may I let him be strong in my weakness, you see. Don't forget as we remember this great God, that we remember he is an omnipotent God of all power. We can't let that slide by. Amen? All right. So we're going to go here. We're going to continue. See, pick up the pieces here in verse 16. So after that vicious, devastating plague, show of uh, all power, he says this in verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily calls Moses and Aaron. Well, that's a good thing to do after devastating plague. Let's call them back in here. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin. Please only this once. And I plead with the Lord your God only to remove the death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts up and drove them over into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again, and he did not let the people go. Now this one I did not feel sorry for Pharaoh because he had just done this the chapter before. Remember when Justin taught? Remember? He did the false repentance. He relented, and then he hardened again. Right? These are cheap words he's using, Pharaoh, I think. After the devastation, after the consequences, hey, bring Moses and Aaron back in here. And I'm so sorry. I sinned against you again. I'm so sorry. Just like in chapter 9, Pharaoh says the right words of repentance, but he did not follow through with action. They were empty words as his heart was only hardened more. God still showed mercy. And took it away. Something to read about, think about uh, this false repentance. I think it's a lesson we should think about today. Real repentance requires change. It's a change of mind. It's a change of attitude. It's a change of ways. Our will, when we really repent, is brought into action. And we will make a reversal of direction. That's what real repentance is. It isn't empty words that we're saying because we're afraid of the consequences or we're sorry for the consequences. It captivates our will and we move and we change. Paul, to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 7, writes those people a letter because they were in sin and he wanted them to feel sorry. We wanted them to repent. He says, I'm not sorry that I made you grieve or that I made you sorrowful because godly sorrow, what? Produces repentance, and repentance, salvation, and salvation, change, real change. Paul says there in, in that chapter that I'm so proud of you guys because you, you proved in every way that you were innocent 
that you had changed, that you were done with that. That's real repentance. Not, oh Lord, I'm sorry again to do it again. It's I'm moving, I'm changing. My will has been captivated by this repentance and I'm going the other way. And you clear yourself and you're innocent of anything being around that sin. That's real repentance. As one commentator put it, Pharaoh, once again, there comes an easy confession of sin, but only the shallow repentance that springs forth from the desire to avert the consequences. I like that. He repented because he didn't like the consequences. Something to think about. Guilty? Anybody out there guilty? Real repentance requires change. A change of your will and a change of your actions. Real repentance. It's not what Pharaoh had. We will move and keep moving on. Verse 21. We're getting close to being done here. And we're doing good. The ninth plague. Without warning, he brings on darkness. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, stretch out your hand towards heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did they arri- anyone rise from this place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So there you have it. Without warning, in cadence, he doesn't give a warning. He just brings complete and utter darkness to the land. And it was a darkness, it says here in verse 21, that could be felt. And I don't know if you've ever experienced darkness like that. But it reminds me of when I was a kid and I went to the Oregon Caves and they, sh- you know, and they shut off the lights. And I remember being young enough where I was, I couldn't even see the hand in front of my face. And I grabbed someone because I was so scared. I felt the absence of light. It's very rarely that we feel that physically, but I think it's even more here, to be honest with you. We know that God is light. First John chapter five. In him is no darkness at all. And I think God in a supernatural way removed his presence, his common presence, his common grace. All that I think was gone for three days. And I think they felt that. And it drove them to an eerie feeling that they felt. I believe that. Let's continue. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord, your little ones also. May you go with you, but only leave the flocks and the herds behind. But Moses said, you must also let us sacrifice burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to our Lord God so our livestock also must go with us not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again and he would not let them go then Pharaoh said to him get away from me take care never to see my face again for on the day that you see me you shall surely die And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So this last little section here is Pharaoh's last attempt to compromise. Take the people, but leave me some livestock because all mine died in the hail and all the other plagues. I need something to eat. Leave me something. And I love Moses. The saying in verse 26, not a hoof shall be left behind. We're out of here, Pharaoh. And you're almost to your knees We are bringing you to your knees. And there's one more coming that's gonna make you fall to your face. But right now you are a beat up, partial man. Not a hoof left behind. And I love (laughs) what Pharaoh says in response. 
get away from me. I don't want to see your face. We have the saying in our house that we don't even want to see you out of your peripheral vision, right? I don't want to see you out of my peripheral. That's kind of what he said. Don't, don't show your face in me. You're humiliating me. But he's still prideful enough where his heart is hard. And that's no place to be. Now listen, as we conclude here, we've talked about an strong, omnipotent God. We talked about a sovereign God, how we can use his righteousness and his uh, all-powerful uh, righteousness and his sovereignty to fulcrum some things we don't understand. We see everything. We, we, we need to look at these plagues. Now listen, we're almost home. They are one plague away from complete redemption. God is gonna loosen, loosen Pharaoh's grip from his people and they're gonna go through that sea where their true redemption will happen. He's gonna redeem his people that had no value for a while. They're gonna come through there on their way to their promise and we're almost there. And I just wonder if you'd thought as we've been getting there over the past weeks, if you're struck like I am, I've been arrested by God has a plan. It's not the plan I would have made, but what a plan. You can see it working its way out perfectly. It doesn't always work out the way we made a thought. He doesn't one-punch Pharaoh, but he holds him up for a purpose. And he beats him in a lot of different ways. Humiliates him in a lot of different ways so that our grandsons and our sons and their grandsons and their sons would realize this is a strong God. This other guy that thinks he's a God, he's just a type. There's many more of them throughout history. They don't got it. It's me. You should know me. I'm the real living God of the Bible of the Hebrews and the Christians. We've been grafted in here. He has a plan for us too, amen? He has a plan for us. And it's a real, specific, perfect plan. God always has a plan for his people. You can't forget that, especially now. You can't be ignorant to that fact. In the middle of a pandemic, one thing you shouldn't be is ignorant. Ignorant about, there's a plan. And it's all working out, has God ordained it? Do you know that? You may think, oh, this is so little in comparison. And would he care about my life and my loneliness or my isolation now that I'm feeling or my sickness or whatever it may be right now, my business? He's got a plan for all of those things. It's working out perfectly and divinely, you see. You may think that way. And man, I, I go to the epistles all the time and there's great verses to prove that God willed you into his family. Ephesians chapter one, verse 11. He chose you according to his will and his purposes. Yeah, he has a plan for you. But you know who says it better than anybody? Jesus Christ, our Savior. He always says it the best, doesn't he? And in Matthew chapter 10, he says, you can get two sparrows for a penny. You feel a little insignificant? Back then, you could get two sparrows for a, for a penny. And he said, but not one of them falls to the ground apart from my Father. He's got a plan for you. No one's hitting the ground without me is what he's saying. He's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. So whatever you got going on out there in TV land or internet land, wherever you are, realize he's got a plan for your little life. And if you've got breath in it even today, he's not done with you yet. And I hope today as we've gotten by this, you realize that Jesus is saying nothing is too small or large for me. If there's nothing too big, there's nothing too small. It's all the same with him. He's God Almighty Nothing's too small or large to escape my sovereignty or my power. I got you. I'm in control. 
And I'm guiding all all things according to my plan and my will. And I hope today, as we're finishing up this plague narrative, we got one more to go, that we remember we serve a great big God. He is an awesome God. He's a God of all power and might. He's a sovereign God, the ultimate ruler of the universe who has a plan for you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your people. Again, we pray for them. We long for the day that we'll be together again. We miss them. I miss the family of God. I pray that you'd bring us all here together so we could not share a live stream, but we'd share a live hug, a live smile, a live amen, Father. So be with your people. We know you have everything under control. Give us faith. Encourage us in that fact that this is not gonna last much longer, that we're gonna be together and we're gonna be glorifying you together soon. So thank you for all these things. In the mattress name of Jesus, amen.